Father, today, we pray for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Father, that you are leading us by leading our thoughts, by leading us through your providence, but also leading our desires and our will. Lord, we submit to you. Thank you, Lord, that the steps of the righteous are ordered of you and that you will do that for us today, that we will walk straight down the path which you have called us. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, I wanted to talk with you on God measuring your heart. God measuring your heart. This is such a key um, understanding within the Christian life. Because it is in this understanding where we get the difference between dead religion and a living faith. Because what God has done, it is, He has taken a dead, stony heart, stony heart that is a heart that cannot respond. And He took it out and He gave us a heart of flesh. In the Old Testament, He gave us the promise that there will be a time when He will circumcise not the flesh, but He will circumcise the heart. And so we want to talk about the heart. And uh, first, when we see that the Bible is persistent and it's relentless and pressing on how uh, it addresses this very issue of the heart, we too have to turn our attention to the subject. So I would like for us to consider the state of our hearts. So that's the question I have for you today. What is the state of your heart? Because from your heart flows every other decision that you make in life. From your heart flows the way you respond and act to all people around you. Because of the state of your heart, you go ahead and you create your priority lists. Your priority list looks the way it does because of your heart. In other, way, in other, in another way of saying it is, your, priori your list of priorities is a reflection of what's going on in your heart. The way you, you treat people and respond to people and the way you respond to the world is in fact a picture, a reflection, a projection of what is in fact going on inside of your heart. Scriptures have so much to say about the heart. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, yet we are commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, Luke 10, 27. The Bible says, Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, in fact, will be the ones who see God. Matthew 5, 8. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, not to the one who's heartbroken, but to the one who is broken over their sin, the repentant individual. The Lord is near to that person. Psalm 34, 18. It says, The joyful heart is good medicine. Proverbs 17.22, it says the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those are the things that defile a man, Matthew 15.18. We see Jesus give us the parable of the four soils, which are an example of four different kinds of hearts. And these different kinds of heart, hearts determine how a person will respond to the Word of God when it comes to them. It says that the issues of life flow from the heart. There isn't a thing you do in your life that doesn't springboard from the very heart that you have. Proverbs 4.23 It 
The state of a person's heart determines what he finds to be pleasant and what he finds to be detestable. The same thing can be very pleasant to one person while detestable to the other person based upon their hearts, the position of their hearts, the kind of heart that they may have. The state of your heart determines what you desire, what you long for, what you find repulsive. So what brings one person a lot of pleasure might bring the next person torment because of the hearts within those people. In Luke chapter 6, 45, Jesus clarifies that your heart is in fact like a box. It's a treasure box. And whatever fills that treasure box, whether it be good or evil, comes out of your mouth, comes out of your life. But that means we can conclude that whatever has come out of our lives, whatever we see in our life, actually comes from this treasure box, our heart. So whatever has been put in there is what consistently comes out in our lives. Luke 6, 45, it says, it says, the good man... Out of the good treasure of his heart. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. An evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth what is evil. For the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Family, we don't have... Let me not say it this way. We do have a problem with morality in our nation. We do have a problem with many things and a hatred in our nation. But all of those things that we see on the news on a daily basis is the overflow of people's hearts. Again... The doctrine of total depravity, or better stated, the doctrine of total moral inability or radical corruption, is the most verifiable doctrine of all. It is indisputable. It cannot be debated. Men are evil in their heart. Their hearts are fallen. And unless God acts upon a man, takes out the stony heart, and puts in a heart of flesh, they will breathe hatred. The Apostle Paul being the greatest example of all. How he was breathing hatred towards God's people. The Bible says that he did. He was chasing after trying to eliminate all of them when God acted upon him, gave him a new heart, and he turned and became the one, the greatest champion of all within the body of Christ. It's an amazing thing how God can act upon evil hearts by circumcising it. And suddenly that person has a brand new love, brand new likes, brand new appetites for the things of life. Completely new. A new creature with a new heart, therefore a new nature, therefore new desires, a new will, wanting what they never wanted before. People go like, well, you say there is no freedom of choice. Yes, there's freedom of choice. Everybody chooses according to their own nature. 
Everybody chooses. They make their free choices according to their nature. That's why a dog would run and bite somebody that walks past, <laughs> you know, past your driveway. Why? Because your dog has a nature. Not all dogs do it, but some dogs do. Everybody acts according to their nature. They make choices freely according to their own nature. But when God takes out that old stony heart and He puts in a heart of flesh, He in fact gives you brand new desires. That heart has brand new loves. And that heart now hates what it used to love and now love what it used to hate. It's a miracle. It's a work of God. The state of your heart is an absolute game changer. We are now responsible, and I'm speaking to believers today, we are now responsible to steward this new heart that God has given us. Not convoluted and use it as a trash can. But we need to protect it above all else. Because it will determine what you love, what you hate, what you desire, what you long for, what you despise, what you give yourself to, what you protect yourself from. So today we're going to ask some crucial questions. Number one, what does the Bible refer to when referring to the heart? Where is your heart? What is it made up out of? Number two, how to know if I have a weak conscience, a clear conscience, a seared conscience, etc. Number three, we're going to ask the question and answer what are the symptoms of a hardened heart. In other words, how do I know my heart has become calloused and hard? And then we're going to ask what does it mean to guard our own hearts? So first, where is the heart of man located? I can point to my elbow and I can point to my toes, but where do I point to when I point to my heart? Thomas Watson, a Puritan, gives us some insight. He writes, quote, The heart is taken diversely in scriptures, sometimes for the mind, Proverbs, 6, Proverbs 8, 10, uh, 10, 8, sometimes for the conscience, 1 John 3, 20, sometimes for the will and affections, Psalms 119, verse 36. A.W. Pink, he answers that same question this way. He says, quote, The heart is the seat of man's thoughts, of his actions, and of his will. So in Proverbs 4, verse 23, we are therefore concluding, because the heart is the birthplace of, you might say, or the generator of, the generator, the fountain of thoughts, the fountain or the generator of ideas, the birthplace of confidence, the birthplace of courage, the birthplace of conscience and conviction, the birthplace or the, con or the, or the, the fountain of drive in your life, or the fountain of desire, of affection and of emotion. You know, sometimes people wonder like, why is that person such a mess? Because of their heart. Well, no, it's not their heart. They have problems in their mind. It's a heart issue. So it's the fountain of thoughts, of ideas, of confidence, courage, conscience, conviction, drive, desire, affection, emotions. And in Proverbs 4.23, now we realize why it says, 
above all else, guard your hearts, protect your hearts, watch over your heart, keep your heart with all diligence. The second question I would like us to turn our focus to, our attention to is, how do I know the state of my conscience? How do I know? Because remember now, it's made clear that our conscience is part of our heart. When God smites your heart, He's smiting your conscience. When you are riddled with guilt, it is because your heart has been smitten with the fact that you are guilty of a sin. It is your conscience. You cannot divorce heart from conscience. Your heart has a conscience, is your conscience. So how do I know the state of my conscience? Now, there are many types of consciences described in Scripture. Uh, some are godly, others are ungodly. And here's a short list. Let me first start with a short list of consciences or types of godly conscience. Types of the godly conscience. Number one is the good conscience. The Bible speaks of in Acts 23, 1, 1 Timothy 1, 5, Hebrews 13, 18, 1 Peter 3, 16, and 21. The Bible speaks, number two, of the offended, unoffended conscience. Unoffended conscience. In Acts 24, 16, something this generation does not have. And then number three, we uh, see the Bible speaks of the pure conscience. 1 Timothy 3, 9. Number four, of the cleansed conscience. In Hebrews 9.14. And then we have a list of ungodly, the ungodly consciences. And I want to specifically zone in on these to explain them to see if we can pinpoint where we might fit in. The first of the ungodly conscience is the weak conscience. And we see the weak conscience is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 11. You might say, well, Jacques, what is the weak conscience? The weak conscience feels guilty for things that are not sinful. Feel like they need to run to the confession box over things that God never prohibited. Like accidentally dropping your Bible on a dirty floor. If your heart smites you for doing that, it's because... Your conscience is weak in that area and you are responsible to inform your conscience of what truly is sin and what is not sin. You might say, Jacques, why is this important? How many of you would say, by a show of hands, that we currently live in a generation void of discretion? Yeah. Well, let me ask this question. How many of you would say that this generation is void of, and here's a big word, discernment? Yeah. They cannot tell the difference between right and wrong. They can, they, therefore, they do not know the difference between uh, good, good and evil. Therefore, they don't have a conscience to, to accuse them or excuse them, no matter which path they take. It is because this generation, they have had their consciences killed. they championing saving a whale while championing killing the baby. They have no conscience. And we have to make sure that God, uh, we, we know God is preserving us, but this is how He preserves us. 
He gives us directives as to what we ought to do in the middle of darkness. So the weak conscience is the person that's always saying sorry about everything when in fact they didn't do anything wrong. But beyond that, the weak conscience also cannot easily make godly decisions. It's difficult for them to make godly decisions. Shall I do Bible reading today or not? Shall I worship today or not? Shall I pray today or not? Shall I make the effort or not? It's a big problem in the West. Why? Because everything is convenient. And we are basically wired to think when something is inconvenient, it's not for us. We have got to get a grip on that, family. As a church, we have got to get a grip on that. It's inconvenient to stay married. It's inconvenient to raise children. It's inconvenient to stay at peace with your brothers and sisters in the church. It's inconvenient to be a faithful church member. It is inconvenient to... Basically, everything is inconvenient unless it's fourth self. That book called The Rise of Self. Ben Shapiro was actually a Christian wrote it. But Ben Shapiro said it is the most important book of this century. Because this is where we fall. We now make our consciences answer to self. No, your conscience is supposed to answer to Scripture. And don't come, don't come with that whole thing, well, my conscience is answering, is answering to God and I believe God said. No, no. We know what God said. We don't know what you believe God said. We know what God says. We have got to learn to live for His glory and not our convenience. And so here is the weak conscience. Number one, feels bad about things that don't matter. Feels passionate about the whales dying and about it being so hot this summer. We've got to do something. Yeah, if you think this is hot, folks. <laughs> there are other things we, can, we need to do things about because it's hotter on the other side for many. And it's important, it's an urgent matter that we reach the lost world. Much more important than saving the climate. But people's consciences are tied to things, lesser things, unimportant things, in comparison to the most important thing. But as I mentioned beyond that, the weak conscience, the person with a weak conscience always allows the will to override the conscience. I feel bad about something, but I'm st I still will to do it. I get pricked in my heart about something, but I still, I'm going to motor forward. I'm going to bulldoze forward over my conscience. I'm going to rip it away from, I'm going to just like cobwebs, pull it away from me, and I'm going to just keep going because this is what I will to do, even though my heart accuses me because it knows that I'm not living for God's glory or according to scriptures. That is the person with a weak conscience. The weak conscience, it's almost like an arm wrestle. 
the weak conscience cannot push up against the flesh. It just always gives in. So the conclusion here is, I have a weak conscience when I feel guilty for things I'm not supposed to. And when I can't say no to things I know is sin. When that is I, if that is me, when that is I, I have a weak conscience. Then the Bible, number two, talks about a defiled conscience. A defiled conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 and Titus 1, 15 and 16. The defiled conscience claims to be a follower of Christ, but lives as, as though Christ does not. He claims that he believes in God, but he lives as an atheist. So the conclusion here is I have a defiled conscience when I live like an unbeliever would. We have to live separately, differently from the unbelievers in this world. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a, a lunch Tina and I went to when this church was started. And one of, the, one of the young men that we got off of the internet, because what we did is we went on Craigslist and we started advertising, hey, we're starting a church. If you can play an instrument, we would like you to join us. And this young guitarist decided to join us. He was uh, not really all that young. Um, he was already, I think, in his 30s. And this guy went to lunch with us. And he was so passionate about worship. You know how these guys are. They don't know one verse in the Bible. But man, they are passionate about God and who God is, as if they have any clue of who He is. So we're sitting at lunch, talking to this guy, and he's excited about joining the band, and he was a great musician also. And I remind, remember the one guy walked up to us uh, past the, the table, and he goes, hey, let's say the guy's name is John. Hey, John, and this guy looks up and he says, hey, Jimmy, and, and they get up and they hug, and man, how's it going? And he sits down and he goes, what are you guys doing? And then I could see he was a little backpedaling a little bit. He goes, well, you know, um, yeah, we, you know, we talking about music. I'm like, oh, well, he goes, well, actually, this is Pastor Jacques, and I'm, I'm playing for the... This Jimmy guy goes, are you a Christian? Yeah. And he goes, uh, yeah, 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 I'm a believer. No ways, no ways, so am I. And, and so it turns out that they are so excited that both of them are believers, only to now find out that they've been working in the same office for 10 years as, as office partners. <laughs> and this is the person who basically... Declares one thing with his mouth, but when you find out his life, you find out that he lives like an unbeliever would. Nobody would even know that he's a Christian. That's the defiled conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, 7, Titus 1, 15 and 16. Number three, then we have what is known as the wounded conscience. The wounded conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, 8 verse 12. And this is the person who is called on to do what they know is wrong to do, but then they go ahead and do the wrong thing anyway because somebody told them to do this. For instance... When a boss tells a secretary or when a boss tells, uh, tells you to start cooking the books and you go ahead and you sin because your authority told you to. This is the person with a wounded conscience. It also plays out in the family. Like for instance, when, an, when uh, a child is told by the parents to lie about something. Or when authorities in society demand, uh, demand you misgender somebody. It is now... It is now a mandated thing that you have to do this. 
Well, it's against your conscience, but you still have to go and do it. Or when you go and do something against your conscience because you were told to do that, and you obey them, your conscience is being wounded, and you are guilty for it. And number four, the wound is the evil conscience. The evil conscience is found in Hebrews 10 verse 22. And this is literally the unsaved individual. This is three of the four soils. It's the unregenerate man's conscience. He's completely given to what seems right to himself. The Bible says every man is right in his own eyes. So he's completely given to what seems right to himself, knowing that he's going against what Scripture actually says. So the conclusion here is the wounded conscience is if I obey others, excuse me, is, is if I no longer feel conviction or guilt for participating in a sin. Excuse me. I'm talking about the evil conscience, right? The evil conscience. Okay. The evil conscience is uh, if I reject Scripture as God's Word. It's if I reject Scripture as God's Word because I elevate my own opinion and I put myself on a pedestal. I am now the ultimate authority. And then number five is the seared conscience. And that's found in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. And that is... Uh, if I no longer feel conviction or guilt for participating in sin. I no longer feel bad. So first, we have the weak conscience. The weak conscience is when I feel guilty for things that are not sinful. And when I can't say no to the flesh, it's because I have a weak conscience. I have a defiled conscience when I live like an unbeliever would in this world, but call myself Christian. I have a wounded conscience if I obey others against my own conscience. I have an evil conscience if I reject Scripture as authority and I put myself in as the authority. Number five, I have a seared conscience if I no longer feel conviction for guilt or participation in sin. So what are the symptoms of a hardened heart? So we talked about the different kinds of consciences. But what is, uh, what are the symptoms of a hardened heart. And to look at the symptoms of this kind of heart, we have to look at Pharaoh. And first we see that a hardened heart is the disobedient heart. I want to show you this in Exodus 7 verse 13. The Bible says, Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. He wouldn't listen. He wouldn't obey. He would disobey. And that was proof of the fact that his heart was hard. In Exodus, Exodus 7 verse 22 it says, But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said he would. So this is the first and the most obvious characteristic of a hardened heart. The hardened heart is stubborn. The hardened heart cannot listen. The hardened heart cannot be spoken to. The hardened heart cannot be taught. The hardened heart cannot obey. The hardened heart cannot submit. Now, when you see that in a person, in yourself, maybe in your children, or maybe in your spouse, maybe in family, the hardened heart is the one that cannot do any of that toward God. Toward God. Oftentimes, 
let me, let me move on. The second identification of a hardened heart is that a hardened heart does not recognize the finger of God. It doesn't see God. It doesn't see God work. Exodus 8 verse 19, we see the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. The magicians recognized that what Moses was doing was from God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. So a person with a hardened heart does not recognize the spiritual realities around him. God moves and they are oblivious to it. They always miss the move of God. Their heart has no perception of spiritual things. A hard-hearted person cannot see the way God is working in their situation. For instance, two people may go through the exact same situation in life. They may go through the exact same hardship in life. One is humbled by that hardship, runs toward God because of it, begs God for mercy, grows more dependent on God because of it, trust God more now because of it, while at the same time, the other person who experienced the exact same thing grows hardened and resentful toward God, now shakes his fist. That is the sign of a hardened heart. They do not recognize God's working in all of the above. That is the danger, folks. When you see Satan behind every bush, when you see Satan behind everything that happened that you don't like. Ah, the devil's after me again today. Watch out for that. Because that is the road to a hardened heart. Now we can talk about that more for about another five hours if you want. But the hardened heart does not recognize the finger of God. Just like Pharaoh. He saw hardship and his heart hardened. He did not know that it was God. He couldn't see it. Even though... Um, the magician saw it. The third thing, the third thing about the hardened heart is that a hardened heart wants to receive from God but doesn't want to hear from Him. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll receive all I can get from God. Just don't, don't talk to me about, about God. Exodus 8 verse 28 says, Pharaoh said, quote, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God. He didn't say to the Lord our God. He said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness. But you must not go very far. Now, pray for me. <laughs> it's so interesting. People will oftentimes come to you and say, um, will you pray for me? Just pray for me when you have a moment. Just pray for me. And then you ask them, so how's your church life? Oh, no, I'm non-practicing. Non they come and they ask for a miracle. They come and they ask for counsel. You ask them, how's your, how's your Bible, Bible reading challenge going? Well, you know, I'm busy. Well, I'm busy too. Now I'm sitting here counseling for, for 10 hours, but I can't get you to read the Bible. I tell you what, my counsel is you read the Bible. 
Council over. <laughs> Let me say, say this. People who find themselves, people who find themselves in a big hole in life, the way God delivers you is living for Him. <laughs> That's right. Stop looking for a, a casino deliverance. Stop thinking you've come to Vegas. Hey, could you lay hands on me quick? No, like, serve the Lord. That's His way out. That's His way out of bondage, right? So a hardened heart wants to receive from God but doesn't want to hear from Him. I want to read that again because it's so powerful. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now, pray for me. At the end of the fourth plague, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh slightly here acknowledges God by saying, now pray for me. However, Pharaoh still would not obey God. and He would not let God's people go. He still would not obey God in any way. And this is a symptom of a hardened heart. Wanting something from God, but never willing to listen to Him or serve Him. The hardened heart always says, I don't want your commands. I want your blessings. I don't want your commands. I want your blessings. The fourth thing about a hardened heart is that a hardened heart never blames self. Of course not. But would rather blame the messenger for their own hardships. Stop preaching so hard, Jacques. I've, I've noticed this thing, been in the ministry since 1993, I think. It's been such a long time, can't think that far back. <laughs> I think that's when I was ordained, if you remember. But one thing I've noticed about congregations is a hard word produces soft hearts. A soft word produces calloused hearts, hardened hearts. You go to a church where everything is just blowing smoke all day long, you're going to find a bunch of really hard people. You show them a scripture about God that isn't nice. Well, that's not my God. And you cannot convince them any other way. You can, that, those are the hardest people to minister to. You know why? Because they've been inoculated. Inoculation is getting the actual disease in a tiny little fraction of it in order to build an immune system against it. So what they do is they listen to Joel Osteen for a little bit, and now you can't preach the gospel to them anymore because they know better. They've been inoculated against the actual message of the gospel. You try and preach total depravity to that crowd, forget that. They're way too favored by God. They're way too anointed and loved. They're way too important. God came to die so that He could have them because they were that important. He didn't come to die in order to save them from self. No, He came to, he came to purchase them because of their value, not because of His love for them. It's a very upside-down gospel. No, God came because He loved, not because I was awesome. So we see a hardened heart never blames self, but would rather blame the messenger for their own hardships. In Exodus 10, 28, Pharaoh said to Moses, 
Get out of my sight. Now remember, God was the one who sent Moses to Pharaoh. Moses kept on hardening his heart. Well, it was God hardening his heart. Why was God hardening Moses' heart? It's not in my notes, but I feel like I really want to say this. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? That is not nice of God. Because it was because of Pharaoh that God's glory was displayed through every one of those plagues. God's glory was displayed. Every one of the ten plagues are connected to one of their ten gods. God of the Nile, God of the sun, God of the frogs, God of the flies. They would worship all these gods. And every one of the Ten Commandments, Moses would call down a plague that would overthrow the God they were praying to, asking that God for a blessing. The frogs would come and destroy everything. They would pray to the God of the Nile to provide the water and God would turn it to blood. He overthrew every single one of their gods. Why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Because God was ready to display His glory that He is God of all gods. That He's really the only God. Pharaoh gets angry, not with his sin. He gets angry with the prophet that points out his sin. This is today's problem. A hardened heart blames the messenger and even God instead of recognizing their own condition. It's never their fault. That is the hardened heart. It's not my fault. It's yours. It's everybody else's fault. Number five. So now that we've learned about all of these different conditions of the heart, how to recognize all the evil consciences and how to recognize a hardened heart, I want to ask the question, how does it, how does it, or what does it mean to keep or guard my heart? This is so important. A.W. Pink, he says it this way. We are to keep the imagination from vanity. Keep the imagination from vanity. Stop imagining yourself as being more worthy. Or finding a more worthy spouse than the one you have. Vanity of the mind, of the imagination. Stop being so resentful because of the life you were given. Stop imagining yourself to have, I'm supposed to have a better life by now. If it wasn't for my boss, if it wasn't for my spouse, if it weren't for my children, I'm supposed to have a better life now. If it wasn't for these messages, if I would rather just listen to Joel or whatever the case is, I don't know. I don't know why I'm on that. But people imagine themselves to deserve better than what they've got. But God has called us to be content with the lot we've been given. Grow where you're at. Be faithful with what you've got. Thank God because you know what you deserved was hell. Yet look at what you got. Isn't that wonderful? You know, driving through all those beautiful states back into Illinois, you go like, hey, what just happened in my heart? <laughs> I'm like, I'm thankful, Lord, because I am, I'm alive for His glory, for what He's doing, and not for what I would love to have, right? 
So I always love it when pastors get called in the middle of winter. The Lord calls them to Hawaii. <laughs> There's such a big work to be done in Hawaii right now. <laughs> we have to learn to live for God's glory. So A.W. Pink says, we are to keep the imagination from vanity. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Again, the, the doctrine of total depravity without it, I don't even know if there can be a gospel without that. Because then you're looking for answers without even ever asking a question. Right? We are to keep the imagination from vanity, the understanding from error. How do you keep your understanding from error? You go to scriptures. You don't go walk in the park asking God to answer the questions in life. No, you go to scriptures. That's, where you, that's your source of truth. The understanding, keep it from error. The will from perverseness. The conscience, clear from guilt. Keeping the affections from being inordinate and being set on evil objects. Keeping the mind from being employed on worthless or vile subjects. Worthless or vile subjects. The whole from being possessed by Satan, he says. This is the work to which God has called us. So in a nutshell, what A.W. Pink says about guarding your mind, or guarding your heart, excuse me, is to cleanse your imag imagination from vanity about yourself, to protect your understanding from error by going to scriptures, by keeping your conscience clean before God. In other words, repent, 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 repent. You should never miss communion. Probably, if not, the most important part of service is when we close our eyes and we come to God repenting. Starving your worldly affections and your worldly relationships that feed, you, feed your inordinate affections. Nothing feeds you, your affections, with something inordinate more than having conversations with the wrong people. Family, if you find yourself in a difficult situation in life, please... Guard who you listen to. Don't talk to everybody about everything. This is the way of this generation. Go on Facebook, say, I'm having a really hard time right now. So, like, well, thank you. <laughs> this is not how God called us to deal with issues. When things become hard, when you become burdened, when you become tormented, when you're struggling in relationships, when you're struggling with children, when you're struggling with marriage, when you're struggling with the Lord, who you don't listen to matters. Stay off the internet. All the internet counsel is, 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 has been so devastating to so many people. It's almost like this. When you eat too many different kinds of foods, Guess what happens? Yeah, you mess up. You get a messed up stomach, right? And that's what happens to people spiritually. They go on the internet and they find a tremendous amount of counsel or they go to all the wrong friends and they listen to them and they talk for hours and they gossip and they cry on each other's shoulders and they whine and they weep. And guess what? You've just multiplied what was already wrong. Keeping on 
Guarding your heart is such a great promise that comes with it. And look at it quick and I'll close with this. Proverbs 4.23 Watch over your heart with all diligence. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Watch over your heart with all diligence. That means watch over your thoughts. Watch over your ideas. Watch over, over your conscience, your convictions. Watch over the drive that you have, your affections. Watch over your emotions with all of your heart, with, with all diligence. Why? Because from it flows the springs of life. From it flows the springs of life. Our goal as church leadership here at Christ Nation is to bind your conscience, not to my opinions, not to my vain philosophies, but to a scripture, to a verse. That's why all the men that come up here, when they, when they call you in for worship, they know and they are being trained that they are calling you to bind your thoughts, your conscience, your attention, your heart to the importance of worshiping God in song, giving Him thanks through singing. When somebody gets up here and they preach, they're binding consciences to Scriptures. When somebody gets up here and they receive an offering, they're binding consciences towards generosity, toward God. When they do communion, they're binding consciences toward putting in remembrance all that Christ has done for us. Even the, even the announcements is binding consciences towards get involved. This is what's next. Let's unite around what God is doing right here in this church. Everything we do is binding people's consciences to scriptures. That's why you may have noticed we have a very large amount of songs that we can choose from to sing, but we've basically thrown away 50% of them. Because 50% of the songs we used to have literally bound nobody's conscience to anything except for they sang to Jesus like he's a boyfriend instead of like a king, right? So this is our goal. Our consciences need to be bound to Scripture, and that is how we guard our hearts. Father, today, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Father God, that you will help us become faithful over rewiring our consciences, informing our consciences, with your truth, not the world's opinions. With your truth, not with vain philosophies. With your truth, not with our feelings and emotions. I pray, Father God, that as we bind our consciences, now we will have discernment and now we will be led by your Spirit because your Word is Spirit-filled. In Jesus' name, amen.